Well, I do just want to begin by saying good morning again and welcome now not only to those of you who are here in the contemporary service, but welcome also to those of you who are joining us in the traditional sanctuary and via broadcast. I'm just glad that as one extended church family, even though we're in different places, we get to learn from God's Word together and grow together. So welcome to all of you. Also, while you're getting settled for the message, I'd invite you to take out the study guide that's in your worship bulletin this morning. There's some space on the front there where you can make some notes as we learn from the Bible together today. And as we're getting started here, I want to begin by talking to you about an experience that I think probably a lot of us, maybe all of us, share, and that is the experience of trying to make a decision or having to make a decision about something when it feels like maybe you're trying to honor two priorities at the same time. You're not sure exactly which way you want to go with something. I just had to get a new smartphone recently. My old phone was on the fritz. I had to replace my phone. And while I was doing that, I was picking what features I wanted, what's most important to me. And I remember this thing that a person I know who uh, works in the, te- in the technology field said to me once about choosing technology. He said, you know, there's three things. You can have it fast, you can have it small, and you can have it cheap. You pick two. You don't get to have all three. You want fast and small and cool and all that? You're going to pay for that. You might be able to get something that's kind of fast and and kind of cheap if it's like as big as a Volvo, if you want to go that way, but you you pick two. Which one's the most important thing to you? Because not everything can come in first, but something will. Something will come in first in your priority list. It kind of reminded me of this uh, experience I had as I was thinking about that of a time many, many moons ago, a long time ago, when I was a high school student. I think I was 16, maybe 17 years old. I didn't think about this before I got up to teach, but my parents are here this morning so they can verify whether this story is true or not. But uh, I was in high school, and I had this girlfriend who uh, attended another high school kind of a long way across town. And uh, we went to different high schools. We didn't see each other a lot during the week. Sometimes I'd drive across town, and we'd see a basketball game on the weekend or see a movie or, you know, the stuff that you do. And I remember that during the week, we would talk on the phone sometimes. And I was, a, I'm a, I was a really busy student. I did a lot of things, played a lot of sports, and I was in our theater program, and I was real active in Boy Scouts. We went camping a lot. So, you know, it was always a strain to find time. And uh, I was talking on the phone this one time. And this is way, way back in the dark ages when every house had like one phone in it. Some of you remember that ever? And they had these things on them called cords. They were corded phones way back then. So you always had to like, you know, you like hide in the corner of the kitchen while you're trying to have a private conversation. So because the phone was always in the kitchen because that's a quiet place to talk on the phone. So uh, I'm on the phone and uh, I remember that uh, she, she lamented to me. I'm trying not to say complained. She lamented to me. She says, it feels like I'm always coming in second in your life. I'm always second to this or that. When do I get to be first? I need to be first in your life. And uh, that was honestly one of the last conversations we had after that. Um, <laughs> I don't remember what came after because, uh, you know, I just explained rather candidly, uh, probably not right now. There are other things that are first in my life. And, you know, I mean, I cared about her. She was, we had fun together, but she wasn't going to be first in my life. By the way, those of you who are teenagers right now, it's really okay. In fact, it's really smart if your boyfriend or girlfriend isn't the single most important thing in your life right now. Just public service announcement. That's really true. Thank you. Lots of wise parents there applauding right now. That's really true. People who have been through that period of life know we learn from our mistakes. So just seriously, that's true. But the point I'm trying to make is that uh, we all had to learn, we all have to learn at one time or another, that not everything in your life can come in first, right? But something will, something will. When you think about how you've experienced the truth of this in your life, I know that you experience this in a whole variety of different ways, many of them much more important than the kind of trivial examples that I'm talking about right now. Maybe it comes to heart for you, maybe it comes into action for you in deciding on some kind of major purchase. Could be kind of risky even, depending on how big that purchase is. Maybe you're looking to buy a new home. Maybe it's a first home. 
and you're trying to weigh the different priorities of location, proximity to other things in your life, maybe the neighborhood that it's located in, the size, the features of the home, the price, and you have to kind of weigh the various considerations. Not everything on that list can come in first, but something will. Not everything can be the most important, but something will be. Maybe it has to do with a job or a career choice, a field that you want to work in or a particular job in that field. And you're going to think about the location that you might work or if it's a particular job, the colleagues who are probably there, the salary range that's involved, the, the field of interest, how satisfying it is to you. And, and you might have some give and take on that. Not everything can come in first place on the priority list, but some things, something will. It could be a relationship decision, kind of like the one I described a little while ago. could be something much more important than that. Maybe you're choosing a spouse, finding out who you're going to commit your life to for the rest of your whole life on this earth. Choosing a mate. People make relationship decisions based on a variety of criteria. Some of them are much more important than others. People choose based on physical attractiveness, financial status, faith, character, common interests, shared experiences. Not everything on that list should come in first place, but something will. In my life, I think, and in many people's lives, the place where you see this most obviously, if you look carefully at all, is in the way that we spend our resources of time and money, both of those things. Because we have the opportunity to spend them in a variety of different ways. And we will make decisions based on our priorities, whether we understand that they are our priorities or not. Whether we will spend our resources on ourselves, and some level of that is, is not a bad thing. That's not selfish. That's needful. We have to take care of ourselves. Whether we spend our resources on somebody else, whether we have a generous spirit about any of those things and just say, I want to give that away and bless somebody else. We have a variety of priorities there. They won't all be equally important, but something will be the most important. The sharpest articulation of this principle that I've ever seen uh, was actually on a little plaque uh, hanging on the wall in the home of the guy who was my mentor when I was a pastoral intern uh, almost 15 years ago now. And he and his wife, uh, Pastor Bill, and his wife's name was Cindy, and I would occasionally have dinner at their house, and there was this plaque on the dining room wall near the table. And I don't know if they put it there because it spoke to the priority of family dinner for them or not, but there it was. And it said on that plaque, you always have time for the things you put first. And I read that plaque, and I remember thinking at the time, like, I guess that's true. You know, it's hard to argue with that, really. Sometimes our choices of what to put first may feel kind of forced. They may feel they're backed into a corner on some things, but in some way or another, we're making that choice. And I, I just recognize that as a truth. But Cindy said to me once, as I sort of commented on that, she's like, yeah, I always find that plaque so convicting, which says something about her character. She wants to be convicted every time she goes to dinner, you know. But there, it was on the wall at my dinner, and she said, I, I find that so convicting because it will make me think of all the times during that very day when I will have said, oh, I wish I had time for that, or I'm sorry I can't, I just don't have time for that. And it makes me review my day and think, I would have had time if that was first for me, if that was important to me. And a lot of times, probably she was making the right choice. And sometimes, maybe it was being revealed to her that she wished she would have chosen differently. Not everything can come in first, but something will. And I think there's a lot at stake in us understanding this. Uh, if we don't understand this, or if we try to deny it or hide from it, for one thing, we're going to live with pretty high levels of anxiety. We're going to feel very conflicted because we'll keep making choices that conflict with what we really want, or we won't recognize that we have competing priorities and how it is that we want to sort those things out. We'll live under a lot of tension. We'll feel conflicted about those things. I think we'll also probably, uh, we'll also probably make choices that are pretty counterproductive in our lives. We will wind up working at cross-purposes with what we'd actually like to see happen in our lives because we haven't been clear about what it is that's most important. There's a lot at stake in this. I think if we understand this, if, and if we understand, in fact, especially here in this place, if we understand this is not only true, but this is a spiritual truth. 
if we understand that this is true at the most central place in our lives, then I think we stand the opportunity, we have the opportunity to live lives with actually much higher levels of peace because we'll be able to understand what's important to us and make some choices and not feel so conflicted and have these anxiety about that all the time. I think we'll have the opportunity to live with quite a bit higher levels of joy in our lives because we'll actually be working for and spending our resources on the things that are most important to us. That'll feel pretty good. And probably most importantly out of all this, we would have the opportunity to be more obedient to the teaching of Jesus in our lives because we'll recognize that that's our priority. We'll have the opportunity to be conformed to the image of Christ, whom we call Lord, whose disciples we are. We are not the first people on earth ever to struggle with this. Lots of folks, I think everybody in this room struggles with this in some way. Everybody in all of our worship gatherings struggle with this in some way. But I think people have struggled with this for maybe forever, certainly for a very long time, certainly in the time of the Bible, certainly in the time of Jesus' life. And he taught about this numerous places in his teachings. I want to just give you one real clear articulation of this before we get back to the story that is guiding our learning today. Jesus taught his disciples. This comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters, right? Not everything can be most important. Something will be, but not everything can be. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in the context that Jesus is talking about here, in particular, this principle applies to how we serve God and the material possessions in our lives, money. Some of you who maybe, if you've heard this passage before, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you may know an older translation of that passage that says you cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, I've never heard anybody outside the Bible ever use the word mammon. Uh, well, pastors, maybe, someone preaching a sermon. But other than that, not at all. And yet there are some good things about that word, actually. I kind of like that old word, mammon, because it meant more than just money. It meant more than the green stuff in your wallet or the silver stuff in the cup on your dresser or whatever that is. It referred to kind of wealth more in general, your, your material possessions. Sometimes I think a good substitute for the word mammon, would, this is not very elegant, but would just be stuff. You can't serve God and your, your stuff. Or, or wealth probably would be a good word there also. Jesus taught this in a general way there. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount, that verse I just read to you. But he took this truth and applied it directly into someone's life in the story that we read in both of our worship venues this morning. In that story, there's this wealthy young man who comes to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, he has a question for him. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I got to do so that I can live forever when I die? I want that life. And Jesus engages him in some conversation. Among other things, Jesus says to him, well, you know the commandments. And, he, and Jesus gives him kind of a short summary, uh, an abbreviated summary of the Ten Commandments. This guy says, I imagine with a straight face, good, I've kept all those. Got that down, which is kind of impressive. I don't know whether Jesus believes that or not. He doesn't even engage him in that point. The next thing that Jesus says is, well, you still lack one more thing. And then he tells him, Go sell everything you own, all your mammon, all your stuff. Just go sell all that. Give all the proceeds to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven then, and come follow me. That's hard, right? That, that's a hard thing for us to hear. I, I've never obeyed that in my entire life. I have never taken everything that I own, sold all of it, given it away, and figured out the next step, gone somewhere from there. I would guess that nobody who's gathered here for worship here at First Lutheran this morning has ever done that. Maybe there's an exception, but I, I, I doubt it. What's interesting about this passage and about this teaching is that Jesus says different things to different people in his own ministry, and also different things are said to different people throughout the New Testament about how to handle these things. This is one of the only cases where Jesus actually says, sell all your stuff. 
Last week, we read a story uh, from the story of a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was another guy who, in this case, coincidentally happened to have a lot of stuff. And Zacchaeus tells Jesus, in, in response to Jesus' grace in his life, Zacchaeus says, Lord, I'm going to take half my wealth and I'm going to give it away to the poor. And that's a radical gift of generosity, a radical act of generosity, but it's still not everything. So there's a difference there. There, there are other stories in the Gospel of Luke in particular, actually, where we read stories of people. There is a group of women who are part of one of the royal courts, Herod's court, who supported Jesus out of the material resources that they had available to him. And, and the impression is given that that's kind of an ongoing thing. It's not like they liquidated everything all at once, but they were just giving some ongoing proportional support to help the work of Jesus go on, to support Jesus. There's another great example that comes from a little bit later in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth and giving them some instructions on how it is that they would give generously of their material resources, of their money, to support the work of God in their church community and also in, in other churches and other Christian communities kind of around the ancient world. And what he said to them was, on the first day of each week, set aside a little bit of your income, and when I'm able to come, I'll pick up that portion that's going to go bless the saints in Jerusalem. I'll carry it back there. And so they were worshiping on the first day of the week, just like now, on a Sunday morning. This is very similar to our practice now. They would probably receive an offering of some kind, and some of that money would support the work in that church, and some of that was going to go on and support uh, the, what God was doing among people who were in a famine at that time. We just saw a video about Haiti and the hardship that's there. At that point in history, there was some significant hardship in the area around Jerusalem, and they sent some support there also. It's really very similar to what we do now. There's this whole variety of teachings in the New Testament about uh, specific amounts, about specific outcomes for how it is that we practice our generosity. But in this guy's case, Jesus had to say to him, you've got to sell everything. So it's a reasonable question for us to ask, why is that? Why is this word addressed to that guy? And I think it's reasonable to think that it's because Jesus knew what this guy needed. Because he said different things to other people and met their needs, did what was needed in their lives. I'd like to work on the assumption, if you'll grant it for a second, that he knew what needed to happen in this guy's life. I think that he knew that this guy was so ensnared, so entrapped, so much a servant to another master that he just needed to be liberated from that. That's what it was going to take in his life to break the mastery of mammon, if you will, the mastery of money or wealth or stuff in this guy's life. And the story tells us in the next verse, after the part that we read there, it says, and then, from, and then he walked away sad. He said, no, I'm just walking away. Now, it's important for us to know how this guy approached Jesus. Remember, he came to Jesus, and he didn't ask, Jesus, what's it going to take for you to be master of my life? Jesus, I want to be your disciple. I want to follow your way. I believe in you. Remember his question? His question was, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What's the baseline minimum expectation that I can get away with that I'll still kind of slide into heaven when I die? Could you tell me where that baseline is, Jesus? When you put it that way, I'm not surprised that he didn't answer that question. right? Jesus wasn't interested in being had that way. He had a different thing to say because Jesus didn't come to punch our tickets into heaven. Jesus came to do much more than that. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He came to begin the renewal of all creation. He came to show us the way, to teach the way, to be the way, to die for us, to be raised again from the dead on Easter morning in the first act of dawning of God's new creation. And he certainly wanted to give to human beings, to all human beings, the gift of life that lasts forever. But this is a whole different thing than what this guy was asking for. 
And what Jesus had to say to him was, it's not about you serving something else and kind of getting some goodies from me. No one can serve two masters, right? And if no one can serve two masters, I know that you've got another one, and you're going to need to break with it. And then Jesus said, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, there's another side to this story that I think is critically important. I think it's critically spiritually important to understand another side to this story. And if we don't, I think we'll, get, we'll have a misimpression of how this whole thing works. And if I can just be a little transparent and autobiographical with you, it was actually this week. It was on Wednesday night in our Lenten worship service, and it happened to be that this week I was helping to lead the service on the contemporary side. And I was standing and sitting by and in that chair right over there in that section. And this other side of the story overwhelmed me while we were worshiping. We were singing this song that said about God, one of the lines in the song says, he is jealous for me. God is jealous for me. Some of you will know that song. Maybe you've, we've sung it in worship before. You may have heard it on Christian radio. And we sang that song. And just to be honest with you, that image of God as a jealous God has never been one of the descriptions of God in the Bible that resonates with me the most strongly. And, and the reason for that, I think, simply is that my experience of jealousy is not a real positive thing. I mean, human jealousy is a whole mixed bag of emotions that, that aren't real good, right? It's usually all mixed up with insecurity and fear and self-interest. And so it's never been a description of God that has resonated the most strongly with me. But as we were singing that song, this thought came to me. I think God laid this thought on my heart, and it connected immediately with this passage for me. I just want to invite you to do a little thought experiment with me for a second. If you would just dream up in your head right now sort of the most idealized romantic context, and if it involves a Disney princess, that's okay too. Something like a cheesy romantic comedy, whatever. I should get my daughter up here to help me with this part. Uh, and imagine this, this prince, prince Charming, metaphorical Prince Charming, whoever you want, who says something like, I love you. I care about you. I want nothing but good for you. And, and if you will let me, I will use everything I've got. I will spend my life trying to make the best happen in your life. And it, it just kills me to think that you would go to anybody else who will not love you like I am committing to love you right now. I, I, I'm jealous for your affections because I want nothing but good for you. Now, now I'm a guy, so I know that's never really going to happen. Um, <laughs> just like bring it back down. Okay, that was very unromantic. Um, my wife's in Haiti. She's not listening to this. That's okay. Um, what I mean to say is that in a human context, that stuff gets all mixed up. But as I was singing that song, what overwhelmed me was that God is jealous for us out of the purest of intentions. That God is jealous for your affections and that God is jealous for my affections because he loves you. Because he loves me. Because I believe that it breaks God's heart to see us go and set our heart somewhere else on something that will not love us, that will not do good for us. God's love is meant to set us free. The things of this world will go about enslaving us. God's love is meant to make the most of our lives. So many other things that we would serve with our lives will actually deform our lives rather than make the most of us. They will not help us be the human beings that God made us to be in the first place. So God is jealous for our affections because he loves us with a passion and wants the best for our lives now and forever. And so Jesus teaches that 
no one can serve two masters. And there's this image of master and servant, which I think is an appropriate way to describe one side of our relationship with God. It's one piece of the biblical picture. But there are others. There's also this side where God describes himself as lover to beloved, and that is expressed in both Old and New Testaments also. And God is jealous for our affections because he loves us so passionately. Other passages describe God as a parent, a child, father and child. And God is jealous for the affections and loyalty of his children because he's the one who would protect us and provide for us and care for us. Mammon won't. Nothing else will. It enslaves us. It doesn't set us free and serve us and and maximize the life that God intends for us to have in relationship with him. No one can serve two masters. So I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is if that's what Jesus said to this guy in this story, you're going to have to sell everything. Give all the proceeds to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. What's he saying to us? What do you think would be that word that Jesus would address to you in your life? Another way to put it would be, what would it take to break the mastery of mammon or whatever else it is that maybe is a competing priority for you with God? What would it take so that the material things in life would, would play the role in your life as the blessings in your life that God intends for them to be? And the Bible is full of descriptions of material blessings as blessings, as gifts, pleasures from God. But what would it take to keep them there or as tools in the service of God rather than as things that compete against God for the allegiance in our lives? Because God just wants that to go well for us. When Jesus told this guy who came to him that he should go and sell everything, give it to the poor, that wasn't because he intended for him to be penniless and miserable. Right? That's not what it said. It's, I want you to have, so then you will have treasure in heaven. Treasure on this earth always fades away. It goes up and it goes down like the NASDAQ, right? But God's love is not like that. Treasure on earth is like that. Treasure in heaven is not like that. People sometimes think that as Christians, we view material resources, we view money as being kind of an, an evil thing. There's that verse in the Bible that a lot of people think says that money is the root of all evil. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't even mean that. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Simply because when we love money or mammon or whatever that is, we don't love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it is a poor, poor substitute. So what I'd like to do is ask you, what do you think it is? that Jesus would say to you in your unique set of circumstances, in the place where your heart is right now, in your spiritual condition, in your emotional place, in your relational place, what do you think that word of God would be to you that would help you get to the place where Jesus moves into the center of your life and whatever else is competing for your affections would move out of the center? What I'd like to do this morning is give you a tool that will help you in your own life or the life of your family or household to, to pray about that and think about that going forward after this worship service. You know, um, until a few years ago, and for many, many years, First Lutheran, like many other churches, had a thing called pledge cards. And, and once a year, usually kind of in the later part of the year, October, November, December, people would fill out a pledge card and they would turn that into the church and like the church business office would read it and it would have a pledge. This is what I intend to give to the church's work in the coming year. And, and our church, like many others, was, found that very helpful for planning our church family budget. Many of your households and families have budgets. Our church family has a budget. And that would give us an idea of what, what we thought we could accomplish together monetarily in the coming year. For a number of reasons, we kind of stopped doing that a few years back, and that's not part of our budgeting process anymore. However, in that change, 
it certainly was clear to me that there was another side to those, that kind of activity that I didn't want to see lost for us. For me and in, in our family, in our household, there has always been a real spiritual discipline about that. It's been a, an important spiritual practice or a practice of discipleship where we would take some opportunity to talk about that, pray about that, think about the circumstances of our life right now, and say, what is it that we think that God would call us to in this area of our lives right now? And I found that to be a very helpful spiritual exercise for us on a kind of ongoing basis to check in on that once a year or more often. And so uh, we're going to do that, but in a very different way. At the end of the service day, on your way out, ushers will be at the doors, and they're going to have similar kinds of cards. They're called, we're calling them promise cards. And you can take those promise cards home with you and, and pray over those and try to ask for God's guidance. Read the Bible stories we've been reading today or the story of Zacchaeus that we read last week. There's things that are printed in your study guide in your worship bulletin this morning. And you could just say, God, what is it that you would call me to at this phase or call us to at this phase of our lives? And it might be, a part of it very well might be uh, a promise of what you want to give to God's work in this congregation and also through our congregation outside of it or to other ministries that you're a part of or other uh, compassion-oriented charities that you're a part of. You may also make other commitments on there or other financial decisions that are uh, pretty different from that. That's okay. You could write those on that card and then this is important. You're going to seal that in an envelope. You're going to close that thing up. And you can show it to your spouse if you're married or your family. Anybody else you want to share it to, you'll show it to God. God will see what you're writing there. Seal it in an envelope and then write your name and your mailing address on the front and bring it back to worship next week. And nobody else is ever going to open that envelope. But here in worship, we're going to have some treasure boxes at the front of both of our worship spaces. Here in this room right now, it's kind of over here behind the, uh, behind the percussion kit. And, uh, and in the traditional sanctuary, it's right up next to the altar, also in the front. And we're going to put those envelopes in that box next week. We're going to lock it up, and it's going to stay in our worship spaces over the course of this next year. Same thing we did this last year also. And then at the end of the year, after it's been a part of our worship life, a part of our commitment to say, God, you're first in my life, I want to take this step or these steps toward recognizing you as a center of my life. At the end of the year, we're going to open those boxes back up, and we're going to put a stamp on it and drop it in the mail, unopened, and it'll go back to you just as a similar part of that practice of commitment of spiritual discipline to say, this is, this is what I want to do. These are the steps I want to take to grow closer to God. In previous years, when, when we have done this in our household, the kind of phrase or image that's been in my mind around this practice is a stake in the ground. That's kind of what I've thought. Like, I'm gonna, this is my stake in the ground. I think God has called me this far. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going back from here. Not, there's no retreat from here. But as we read this story today, and I think about the dynamics that are at work and all the different things that compete for our affections, the, the spiritual slavery that we can find ourselves in when we are enslaved to another master besides God who sets us free, I don't think so much about stake in the ground as, if you'll permit the image, stake in the heart. Stake in the heart of this spiritual slavery. Stake in the heart of the mastery of mammon or whatever else it is in our lives that's pushing God out of the center. Stake in the heart of the spiritual adultery, if you'll permit the image, again, instead of faithfulness to the one who loves us, whose affections are set on us, who's jealous for us. I think of this as that kind of commitment to the one who has given to us, who has committed to us. So on your way out today, pick up those promise cards from the ushers and pray over that, and I hope that it can be for you a, a positive spiritual practice in your relationship with Christ. Let's close this time of reflection on God's word with prayer. Good and gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you are jealous for us, that you care about us, that you're not interested in letting us run away from you. We're so prone to wander, God. 
We pray by your spirit, bind our wandering hearts to you. We know that you are good, that you are full of blessing, that you are full of grace, and yet for some reason we find wandering from you to be so tempting. God, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would work in us, even in the face of the opportunity for massive self-delusion, that you would help us to see our own lives and our own priorities clearly. Help us to see your grace and your love more clearly still. And by your spirit, call us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.